0: One Hope Church We're going to read from First uh, Peter chapter 3 verses 13 to 22. And as we read it, uh, I think we can keep in mind uh, some of the uh, terrible things that we've been hearing about in our own country and abroad, and the sorrows that have gripped uh, many hearts individually and personally, even here in this room, and uh, so as we read this uh, passage, uh, it happens to be by the Spirit of God, a very relevant (coughs) passage for our age. Uh, Verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'll read through verse 22. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good Than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once a divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So we read from the New King James Version, and we will uh, study that in more detail as we proceed. Uh, Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your greatness and your goodness. We thank you that you are a God of love and a God of holiness, and that uh, this is certainly apparent in these verses that we've just read from your word. We pray, Lord, that your comfort might be upon each one that needs your special touch at this time. We pray that our eyes would be uh, clear according to your word and that you would uh, show us what you have for us to see this morning. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and in all of this, we pray that he might have the preeminence. We thank you for everyone that names the name of Christ in sincerity and in truth, where you pray your blessing upon them. And for those who are not yet followers of Jesus, we pray that they might soon come to repentance and faith in the only way to heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his worthy name, we ask your blessings. Amen. Uh, The first part of our section, verses 13 through 17, deal with the subject of suffering for right and wrong. Peter says, and who is he who will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Now, the person that has decided to follow Jesus has decided to follow the ultimate good. The followers of Jesus then will live in a way that reflects biblical truth and biblical love. So the question looks for the pretty obvious answer. This should be really unusual to be persecuted, to suffer for righteousness' sake. But in spite of seeking peace and following that which is good, persecution will come. The scripture teaches this. Of course, in the eternal sense, uh, if God is for us, who can really harm us? I mean, you know, they might kill the body, but they cannot destroy the spirit. Verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, as he quotes from the Old Testament. Now, the word blessed or happy that we see here is the same word as used in the Beatitudes. And uh, we've studied that as a church group in our uh, house fellowships uh, in the past. And blessed or happy has uh, the, uh, the thought or carries the thought of being highly privileged. You're highly privileged if you suffer for Jesus. From time to time, one will suffer for righteousness' sake. The the scripture uh, makes that quite plain. As it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, yes, and all who desire to live godly, that is, live in a way that pleases God, who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So it will come. And evil people may well resent righteous people and then persecute them. I think we've seen that illustrated uh, recently. A follower of Jesus should be happy. He is counted worthy to suffer for the Lord. You know, there's this tremendous passage in Acts chapter 5. When they called the apostles, that is the the, the council, the Jewish council, called the apostles apostles and beat them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, not mourning because they'd been beaten, but rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. We should also be happy knowing that God will reward us in a coming day our sufferings in the present are merely a prelude to blessings in the future so we read in Matthew chapter 5 blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake that's the key there that little phrase for my sake rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Matthew five eleven and 12. Then in verse uh, 15 of our passage, it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The word sanctify is interesting. It has to do with being set apart. And so we are to set apart the Lord God in our hearts. That is heart recognition of the Lordship of Christ. It's something that goes really deep into our inner being, that Jesus is Lord and we are subject to him. And he calls the shots in our life. And so uh, it, it goes on to say: once we have that established, that inner uh, reality, we're always to be ready to give a defense, a reason for the hope in you. And being prepared, uh, being prepared to give a defense or ready to give an defense, uh, requires preparation on our part. It's something that's a lifelong process. It takes personal preparation over time for you and for me to be a good witness for Jesus Christ. It says in 2 Peter 2 and 15, Be diligent to present yourselves, yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, that is, teaching accurately the word of truth. Now, the word defense is the word, we get our English word for apologetics. It's, the word means not an apology in the sense that I'm sorry I stepped on your foot. But an apologetic uh, response is a defense of the faith, an orderly defense of the faith. And if, it's to be given to anyone who really wants to know about our uh, trust in Christ. They really have a desire, and we're to be there to uh, greet them with the truth, not in a contentious way. We're not there beating people over the head, but we're to do it in meekness and fear or gentleness and respect. And by doing that, we'll be serving Christ well. Then it says, having in verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. You know, we keep a good conscience when we witness as we should. And believing what we believe as Bible-believing, evangelical Christians, followers of Jesus, we know that people need the truth that we have. It's It's... very, very important for their individual lives. And uh, we cannot keep a good conscience and let them uh, just go by without thinking about it, without praying about it, without doing what we may. A good conscience is knowing we are doing the right thing, and that's an absolute necessity. Even in those gray areas of life, there might not be specific scriptural teaching on a point. Our conscience, our informed conscience, Uh, informed by the word of God, must be, in those cases, our guide. The believer's life is indeed the best antidote for the slander of the unbelievers in this world. If we have a good life, they won't be able to uh, pick it apart as they tried to do, for example, uh, with Daniel and so many others. For it is better if it is the will of God, it says to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, it may be possibly God's will for us to suffer to accomplish some important purpose that he has. You know, many prophets, many apostles have suffered much for God's high and holy and redemptive purposes. And uh, this might be his plan for us, individually as we go through our lives for Christ. And now we're going to turn from that section to the next section. We, we turn from suffering for right, doing right and doing wrong, to Christ's suffering and our suffering. Christ's suffering and ours. Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is presented as the supreme example of one who suffers for well-doing. After his patient suffering on the cross, he was highly exalted, as the scripture uh, teaches uh, so often. It says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. It says Christ also suffered once for sins. That word once is very important. It's not an ongoing thing. It happened once at Calvary some 2,000 years ago. It is a finished work. And Jesus paid a very heavy price to save us from our sins. Think of the price that he paid as God incarnate, God in the flesh. His price was an infinite price paid once and for all. Because he he is an infinite being, his suffering in those hours upon the cross paid an infinite price for our sins. Therefore, there is uh, sin uh, forgiveness for everyone who has ever been born into this world. Jesus died for them. There is a possible uh, outcome for everyone who comes to... uh, adulthood or childhood, and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise is the price has been paid, and they are set free. In Hebrews Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, it says, but this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God It was a finished work. He could sit as as the great high priest at God's right hand, having completed the work once and for all. The just for the unjust, it says. Wow. That speaks of the holy perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it speaks of our desperate need. The just for the unjust. Jesus is the righteous one. We are the unrighteous ones. Christ died a substitutionary death on the cross. That's a very, very uh, key point to the truth of, of Scripture and of the gospel. The word for there is the word huper, which means in the place of and for the benefit of. He died in our place. He died for our benefit upon the cross. Christ suffered tremendous physical pain in those hours as he was nailed there, suffering in our place. But even greater was the spiritual agony that he endured because there he bore God's holy wrath against our sins, against your sins, against my sins. God has a holy wrath against sin, and Jesus satisfied that need to a propitiate that wrath upon the cross of, Scra- of, of Calvary, so we can rejoice in that. Scripture says two things that uh, are both uh, troublesome and, and 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 a cause for rejoicing. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not one of us exe- is exempt from being classified as a sinner in God's sight. But then it says, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation or satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That world there, cosmos, is a very broad term. It means Christ died for everybody and is the satisfaction if they will but believe on him. And then the great purpose for which he came and died—that he might bring us to God. The great purpose was that we would come uh, to the Father, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now this is a point where we have to think carefully. The need was not for Jesus' spirit to come to life. He, uh, his human spirit, never died. It was his body that died upon the cross. The need was for his physical body to come to life in resurrection glory. That was the need. And it was the Holy Spirit that was the means God used that to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and to bring him forth glorified from the dead. Now as we move into the next part of this passage we are we, we've ended with the word the spirit or the concept that it was the Holy Spirit that brought him back from the dead and gave him resurrection glory. Now in verses 19 to 21 we have what's really a kind of per- parenthesis. Uh, the parenthesis is the most difficult passage in the whole of 1 Peter. So everybody please uh, and don't doze at this point. Uh, it says, by whom, that is by the spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Note that there are many interpretations that have been attempted regarding these verses. And these interpretations differ regarding time, place, substance, and results. Tremendous you know, diversity of views. But there are two major views that we want to focus on. The two major views are, first of all, the the first view says that during the time between his death and resurrection, Christ descended in spirit form into Hades. That is the first major view that... uh, We have before us the 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 thing about this view is it has two subviews. The idea that Christ went into to to uh, Hades uh, between his death and resurrection. This uh, the the subview number one has to and the subviews have to do with the nature of the spirits. Now, the first subview views them as demonic spirits in which the idea would be that Christ came to these demonic spirits in prison to announce his triumph. The second subview sees them as human spirits. Christ came in in, uh, those uh, moments between his death and resurrection to proclaim the age of grace. Some say to give people a second chance but a second chance is not supported by the Bible at all. And there, so either to these human spirit he, spirits in this view, he is proclaiming the age of grace, or he is proclaiming judgment. Those are, the, that, those are the two sub-views of the idea that Christ descended into Hades. Now the second major view is, and please listen carefully, the second view is that the pre incarnate Christ, Christ before he became a man, offered salvation through Noah's preaching to the generation before the flood, who are now in Hades because they rejected the message. Okay, let me just read that one more time so you can nail it down. The second view, and this is a view I think is correct is that the pre-incarnate Christ offered salvation through Noah's preaching to the generation before the flood who are now in Hades because they rejected the message. Now, human spirits are definitely to be favored in both major views. We might ask concerning the first view which has Jesus descending in spirit form to Hades, uh, we might think that it kind of begs the question, why would he single out only one segment of sinful humanity to proclaim his victory or his judgment? Why just single, signal, uh, separate out one segment to do this? It doesn't seem very likely the second the first view also seems to run counter to several verses in the new testament remember jesus told the dying thief on the cross assuredly i say to you today you shall be with me in paradise today that is after they had expired the thief would be with jesus in paradise Now, the original word for paradise is from an old Persian word for garden or park. Paradise is a garden or park. The Greek version of the Old Testament used it of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.8. So what do we conclude? Jesus was not going to a prison but to a park. And I think that's supported also... Uh, by the thought that when he did die, he cried with a loud voice and he dismissed his spirit to his father in heaven. It says in Luke 23, 46, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So the second view also fits well with the verses on either side of our passage. In the first part of his letter, Peter was reminded of the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ before he became a man, proclaiming truth through Old Testament figures. He wrote regarding the Old Testament prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So the Spirit of Christ was at work in Old Testament times, moving prophets uh, to speak concerning uh, the things of Christ. So right away you see Peter's thought uh, context has to do with the work of the pre-incarnate Christ in Old Testament times. Now just prior to this section, Peter has encouraged his readers to be prepared to give a true witness in spite of opposition. We've looked at that uh, already. And after this section, we see the believer is to be ready to suffer as the, as the end of all things is, is drawing to a close. is coming near. The coming of Christ is is on the horizon even then. And so the believer is to be ready to suffer with his testimony in these cases. So the context on either side uh, fits well with the second view. The second view fits also the wider similarity of Peter's times with the times of Noah. In both periods a small minority proclaimed God's message surrounded by a vast unbelieving world this was true in Noah's time this is true in Peter's time now regarding the current passage it is important to note the following now, listen to this this is this is quite significant it is not said that Christ preached while in prison. And it is not said that the spirits in question were in prison when he preached to them. That's what people have surmised. It is said that by which, that is by the Holy Spirit, he preached unto certain spirits, and that these spirits are now in prison, are now in prison. The next verse of our passage identifies the spirits as being the wicked people who lived on earth at the time of the Genesis flood. Peter, in 2 Peter two five says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God, he says, did not spare the angels who sinned and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Evidently through Noah, the spirit of Christ witnessed to the wicked in the days before the flood, and the wicked refused to repent, and as a consequence, are in prison in Hades. Awaiting, of course, final judgment, as Hades is kind of that sort of place. Now, in verse 20, it says that these spirits, who formerly were disobedient, When once the long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Not by water, as the old King James says, but through water. God had waited 120 years for people to repent through the preaching of Noah. It took a long time to build that huge, huge vessel. And there were only eight of them whacking away at wood with all sorts of primitive instruments. But during that 120 years, Noah was faithful through the spirit of Christ within him to witness and proclaim to the people, trying to get them to repent that they might be saved. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives were the only righteous people of their day. These eight alone believed God and were delivered from the destruction of the great flood. Now, the first readers and the readers today uh, should take instruction from this. Uh, You know, truth is not established by the number of people who believe or don't believe something. Truth is not established that way at all. And that should... That should be a comfort to us. Most of our world uh, thinks we're perhaps crazy to believe the Bible. But uh, the truth is, the Bible is truth. Jesus said, your word is truth, speaking to the Father. And we can found our lives upon that book, properly interpreted as it interprets itself, And we can rest assured that we have uh, our lives based upon God's living word. Verse 21 says, now, here we go. There is an antitype. Better to use a corresponding type, which now saves us, or you. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer. Better appeal of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's important to say with Peter that contact with water does not remove sin. Now notice the words there is, in the, or and this more, more accurately, that is the water of verse 20 is the antecedent that is understood here. The connection is with the, with the water of verse 20. So water reminds him of baptism. Not the removing of the flesh, but the answer or appeal of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Water speaks of baptism. Baptism was an important personal statement in the first century. I'd like just to read a a, a thought about this from uh, an R.M. Raymer. He writes, baptism represents a complete break with one's past life. That's what it should You know, that's what it should represent. As the flood wiped away the old sinful world, so baptism pictures one's break from his old sinful life and his entrance into new life in Christ. The act of public baptism would save them from the temptation to sacrifice their good consciousnesses in order to avoid persecution. For the first century Christian, baptism meant he was following through on his commitment to Christ regardless, regardless of the consequences. Now, the word antitype that appears in some of the versions uh, is better rendered a corresponding type. The corresponding type is a sec- is a second figure pointing to spiritual realities. The words for corresponding type and baptism are in opposition. Baptism and uh, corresponding type are are sitting side by side, corresponding one to the other. Baptism saves one only in a figurative sense. So your your corresponding type is a figure. Baptism is a figure. These are equivalents. We're talking about salvation in a figurative sense portrayed by baptism. And so in this figurative, descriptive way, baptism, water baptism, shows all the elements of salvation based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. These great acts of salvation are what water baptism is. Uh, has always illustrated and proclaimed when properly done. A baptism, by baptism, a believer is identifying with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. That he's dying, the individual is saying, I'm dying to my old life, I'm, I'm being buried with it, and I'm rising to newness of life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that the final sufferings of Jesus in the Gospels, he calls his baptism in Luke 12.50. He says, I ha- but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. And so it fits very well in this thought of what baptism portrays. The person who repents and believes the good news about Jesus is at that moment Forgiven, justified, and spirit-baptized into the entity called the body of Christ, which is the church, the universal church. This spirit-baptism is a requirement for water-baptism. Peter himself said this when he took the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. He says, Can anyone forbid water that these should be baptized? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Later, Peter makes this point especially clear in chapter 11 when he talks to the church in Jerusalem. He says, And he, that is Cornelius, the Roman centurion, told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter who will tell you words by which you and all your house household will be saved in spite of this man's good life he needed this he needed salvation he, he would hear words whereby he and his household would be saved and as he began to speak the holy spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning that is in acts chapter 2 in Pentecost which was the baptism of the Spirit, he says. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, "John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit." If there God, if therefore God gave them the same gift as He gave us, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? So that's a tremendous uh, thought there that Peter has regarding. Uh, salvation and baptism. In Genesis terms, going back to that thought, our ark of rescue is none other than Christ himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we enter that ark of rescue by faith. The believer's ark, Jesus Christ, rescues us from the waters of death and destruction. Now, you know, our present society is morally much like the society of Noah's time. It says in Genesis 6, 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every thought of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Most of the people of Noah's time did not think judgment would come. Most of the people of our day are without Jesus and living in their sins. The individual sinner does not realize that judgment hangs over him. In John, uh, it says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Wow, that's great, isn't it? And who, he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on him. People don't go around their daily lives and their uh, happy parties and their uh, debauchery and their, their their games and so on thinking that the wrath of God is over their heads and biting on them. But they need to hear it because that's the only way they'll get out from under it. Not only individuals, but the whole ungodly world is headed for judgment. This is judgment not by flood, but by fire and eternal separation from God. And uh, we need to be those who are uh, so concerned that others hear the way to avoid that judgment. It says in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power." You have both elements here, the flaming fire and the separation, punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. So it is not a destruction that causes one to cease to exist, but one that uh, goes on in its separation from the Lord and his glory. Now, it talks about that that passage that we are just reading, going through talks about a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ now not uh, as an answer in as the AV has an authorized version but an appeal it is used in the Greek by the Greeks in a legal sense of a, a demand or appeal baptism is therefore the ground of an appeal of a good conscience against wrongdoing. Peter then adds the words about the resurrection of Jesus to make the source of salvation perfectly clear. Perfectly clear. When we trust Christ alone to save us, our conscience tells us all is well between us and God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And having obtained a good conscience through faith in Christ and baptized in a Obedience to his plan, a believer then can be a confident witness before a watching world. He knows he's saved. He knows he's done what Jesus told him to do, be baptized. And so he becomes a good witness before a watching world. That ends the uh, section that's parenthetical. We're going to go down now to uh, verse 22 who has gone into heaven, that is Jesus Christ, and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Jesus went into heaven, and Peter and others witnessed him being taken up into heaven. They had that uh, awesome experience, that unique experience. And he is now, Jesus is now at the right hand of God. In his glorified body, he is at the highest place in heaven. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Angels are obviously, anyone who has studied the Bible, are spiritual beings who do holy service for God. Authorities are those angelic beings most associated with God's authority. And the powers are those angelic beings most associated with God's power. And so you have all of these things, angels, authorities, powers, being made subject to Jesus, who is at the right hand of God. So... In conclusion, we see all the hosts of heaven being subject to Jesus, the King of glory. The King of glory. And the implication is that eventually everything and everyone will be subject to Jesus. This is the Jesus whom we serve, and this is the Jesus that is Lord of all. And we need to just... Keep on keeping on following after him. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for your servant Peter and for the uh, spirit-inspired words that he has written. We pray that you would just uh, help us to understand these things aright and to apply them rightly to our lives, that we might be those with good conscience bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, to this needy, watching world all around us. We thank you, Father, that you are God of love, and you also are God of holiness. And we pray that uh, many would be saved before uh, judgment falls upon this sin-cursed world. Oh, Father, we pray uh, that many might come from darkness into light, from the thinking of man's thoughts and the wickedness and the downward spiral of our culture and might come into the truth of Christ and the the life that he wants them to live. Bless us as we continue to worship and pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen.